Well, good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. We are plugging away through Hebrews. We're in chapter 12 this morning. This is, I don't even know how many weeks in chapter 12. We've gone a little slower through chapter 12, but uh, this is maybe our fourth week in chapter 12. But we're in chapter 12, verses 18 through 27 this morning. Uh, you'll notice we don't, we're not quite finishing it. There's still two more verses, but we'll pick them up with what follows uh, next week. Before we read Hebrews 12, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you most of all for your son, uh, for the, 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 the word of God, uh, the one who took on flesh, who uh, became a man for us, who became sin for us, that we might find forgiveness and hope in him. We thank you for Christ in us, the hope of Christ in us, and we pray that you would help us to, to understand that better and better more and more every day, uh, that we would rejoice always in Christ in us. Help us to understand your word this morning, pour out your spirit on us, uh, give us, fill us with your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ, uh, that he would be glorified as we look to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our text is Hebrews 12, beginning with verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Well, listening is step one. God wants to whisper his sweet grace in our ears, but we are often just too stubborn to listen. Listening is step one. We start listening before we are even born. I don't know all the ins and outs of what babies can hear in utero, but, but they can clearly hear something. Infants often know their parents' voices and respond differently to them than to others. Listening is step one. 
Now, it's important that we listen to the right voice, right? There are lots of messages out there, lots of voices, voices that point us to this age, voices that point us to death, voices that point us to, to manufacture our own identity, voices that tell us that we are free to be whoever and whatever we want without any repercussions, voices that exhort us to live for the moment because you've got one life to live and this moment is all there is, they say. You'll remember that sin came into the world because Adam and Eve listened to the wrong voice. Sin came in through the ears, as it were. Listening was step one. You may or may not have noticed that this book, the book of Hebrews, has been one long exhortation to listen to the gospel, to listen to the voice of Jesus. It began in chapter one, verse one, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It continued in chapter two, verse one, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Chapter 3 exhorted us in chapter 3, verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Chapter 4 exhorted us to believe the message, Hebrews 4, 2. For the good news came to them, uh, came to uh, us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Chapter 5 warned the readers that they had become dull of hearing. Chapter 6 told us that the word should bear fruit in our lives. Chapter 10 exhorted us to hold fast to what we believe, that is, to the message that we have heard. Chapter 11 gave us examples of those who heard God's word, believed it, and walked accordingly, examples that we are to imitate. And all along, the writer has been telling us the message of Jesus. Jesus as our great high priest and sacrifice, according to the oath and promise of God. The one who has entered into God's presence on our behalf. Now we come close to the end. The writer says in Hebrews 12, 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This whole book has one uh, crystal clear application. There are others, but there's this one that stands out above all the rest, and that is listen to Jesus. Cling to his message, the message from Jesus, the message about Jesus, the message of Jesus as our high priest and sacrifice, the message of Jesus as the one who makes us right with God by the shedding his blood and then pleading with the Father on our behalf based on the merits of that blood, the one who has entered into heaven and has prepared a place for us in the Father's presence. But you might be wondering, okay, uh, still, why this voice? I already said it's important to listen to the right voice, and there are lots of voices out there, religious and secular and scientific and pop cultural. Which voice or voices are we to listen to? And so this morning, I just want to give you four motives to listen to Jesus. We find them in our text, four motives to listen to this voice, the, the motivation of celebration, the motivation of grace, the motivation of accountability, and the motivation of forever. First, the motivation of celebration. How do you view Christianity? 
you know, many view it as essentially a message of condemnation, of fire and brimstone. And it's no wonder that people aren't interested. Our writer does something that he has done throughout. He compares the new covenant to the old covenant, or put differently, he compares the message of the gospel to the message of the law. First, he describes the scene where Israel receives the law on Mount Sinai in verses 18 to 19. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, the mountain of Mount Sinai, right? You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What was the mood of that setting? It was one of terror, darkness, gloom, fire, lightning, trumpets, which often announced both the coming of a king, but also the destruction of his enemies. It was terrifying. This is often the caricature of Christianity, all doom and gloom. Now, it's funny, uh, th this afternoon at our afternoon service, I'm going to talk about how Sinai was a moment of grace. And, and the writer's point uh, here, as elsewhere in the New, New Testament, was not that Sinai was a bad thing, but that in contrast to the brightness of the gospel, even what is gray looks black. A flashlight in the middle of the night seems to light up the room, but a flashlight outside at high noon seems broken. Sinai was an amazing event. It was a moment of grace, building on the Abrahamic covenant and picturing and pointing to the new covenant. But in itself, the system, in contrast to the gospel, in contrast to the gospel, was void of grace. It was doom and gloom. And so Paul calls the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, a ministry of death whose glory is passing away. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, he says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. And just what is that glory, right? What is the glory of the new covenant in contrast? Well, look at verses 22 and 23. But you have come, the writer says, you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Notice the change. The change in mood. Not darkness and gloom, but exaltation. Not Sinai, but Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the assembly of the firstborn, God, the judge of all, which here probably means the one who will put all things right and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The writer is piling on these exalted things and saying, this is where you are. And yet if, if piling up exalt, these exalted things, it doesn't clue you in. When our writer mentions angels, he says innumerable angels in festal gathering. Right? There is a, this, this is a celebratory assembly. It's a party. It, this is not doom and gloom. It's a celebration. 
You know, so many of Jesus' parables describe the kingdom of God as a celebration, a party, a wedding feast. And if we miss that God's kingdom is a party, it's not because Jesus didn't repeat it enough. Jesus opened his ministry by turning water into wine to keep a week-long wedding celebration going. When he returns, it will be for another wedding celebration, his own. Revelation 19, 6 through 9 says, Hallelujah! The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And yet my favorite image that Jesus gives in this respect is the story of the prodigal father. It's in a chapter with three parables, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. When the sheep is found, the shepherd says to his friend in Luke 15, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, heaven is a place of joy and celebration over the work of the Son in finding the lost sheep. When a coin is found in Luke 15, the woman says to her friends, in again, Luke 15, verse 9, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Of course, the implication is God himself rejoices over his people. Then you have the parable of the lost sons. And when one son returns, the father says to his servants, Luke 15, verse 22, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. There is music, there is dancing, there is rejoicing. Jesus' parable of the talents. The master entrusts something to his servants and the ones who invested and get a return. Part of the reward is enter into the joy of your master. You see that the consistent picture is this. God is partying in heaven. He is rejoicing over his work. He is celebrating over his children. Zephaniah says as much in Zephaniah chapter three, he says, the Lord, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will say, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. See, when we come to God, we come not to, to Mount Doom and Gloom, but we come to Mount Celebration, Mount Sinai. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. The question comes then, how the change? I mean, how do we move from the gloom of Sinai to the joy of Zion? You see, God's anger against sin is real. His condemnation of sinners is just. So how do we make that move from the gloom of Sinai to the joy of Zion? Well, the Bible's answer is simple, though, as some say, deep enough to drown in, right? Jesus faced the fury of Sinai that we might have the celebration of Zion. Jesus said to some in his day, I do not condemn you. It is Moses who condemns you. You see, the law, God's standard of love, condemns us because we all fall short. And Jesus came to face the condemnation of the law for us. He came to bear God's wrath for sin that we might know God's joy for lost and found sinners. God has invited you to a wedding feast. He, he has put on a celebration in honor of his son to rejoice in the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Christianity is not ultimately a religion of doom and gloom, but a religion of celebration. And that is why we gather each week to celebrate what our father has done in his son. Do you want to know this joy? Well, let that desire for joy move you to listen to Jesus, to pay attention to the gospel, to hear the father's whisper of grace. So this is motivation number one, the motivation of celebration. There is joy to be found in God. There is joy to be found in the gospel. That brings us to, to number two, the motivation of grace. See, coupled with doom and gloom are those who think Christianity is, is all about rules. You know, do this, don't do that, and then maybe God will love you. Now, uh, there are rules in Christianity, as in every other society, right? I don't want to mislead you. God wants us to love one another, and he tells us what that love looks like. But we shouldn't misunderstand, right? Following rules is never the way to get God to love you. you. You don't have to be good for God to love you. In fact, the message of the gospel is God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is not dependent on our love. In fact, it is the cause of it. We love because he first loved us. Look again at our two mountains. First, verses 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The Israelites begged for Moses to mediate for them, to be their messenger, to, to go between them and God. It was all too terrifying for them. If so much as a sheep approached Mount Sinai, it would be stoned to death, not to mention an Israelite, a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. You see, the message of Sinai was first, do this and live. Here's the law, keep it and live. But every Israelite had already failed to keep the law, and so the message of Sinai was this, approach God and die. No wonder the Israelites didn't want to hear it, right? In, in that, they, of course, recognized the power and the holiness of God, which was good. They also wanted to put as much distance between them and God as possible. No, no, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't, don't let God speak to us lest we die. And it's true that, that Moses went up on the mountain and, and Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders went halfway up, but the people stood far off. But our writer says to his Christian readers, you have not come to Sinai, but to Zion. Again, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, there, there is a better message than approach God and die. There is the message of the blood of Jesus. And now the writer uh, contrasts this with the message of the blood of Abel. Abel, you may remember, was uh, killed by his brother, the first fratricide. <clears throat> and God said to Cain, Abel's brother's, 
Abel's brother. He said that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. Now, what did it cry out for? Well, it cried out for justice. It wanted justice to be done and sin and death to be overcome. The martyrs in heaven cry out to God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, the blood of the oppressed cries out for justice. How is the message of the blood of Jesus any different? Jesus was oppressed, right? He, he was, he was uh, wrongly accused, wrongly convicted, nailed to a cross where he was left to die. How is the message of Jesus any different from the message of the blood of Abel? Well, Abel's blood cries out for the condemnation of his enemy, but Jesus seeks the justification of his. Abel's cries out for justice. Jesus cries out for mercy. Abel's seeks victory over death and sin, but Jesus' blood announces victory over death and sin. You see, the message of Sinai is approach God and die. The cry of Abel's blood is justice, but Jesus' blood cries out for grace. The message of the gospel is not do this and live, nor approach God and die, but trust in the blood of Jesus, shed for your sins and live, followed by welcome into the Father's presence. How do we know that Jesus' grace brings welcome? Well, because Jesus rose. Uh, Jesus bore our sin in all of its guilt and shame. He faced the wrath of the Father for sin, but then Jesus rose from the dead, entered into the Father's presence, and sat down at the Father's right hand. And he is there pleading for us with the implication that on his account, we too are welcome into the Father's presence. We see it in our passage this morning in verse 23. You have come to God, the judge of all. Well, how can we come to God as judge? Because of grace. Because our sins have been forgiven. Our guilt has been atoned for. Our shame has been removed. We are welcomed into the Father's presence. Hence Hebrews chapter 4. Where it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Christianity does not bring a message of condemnation, but one of grace. Yes, grace found in Jesus. And so listen to him. And so we talked about the motivation of celebration and the motivation of grace. That brings us third to the motivation of accountability. <clears throat> one of the reasons people uh, don't listen to warnings is that they think the danger will never come. It won't happen to them after all. Think about children, right, who refuse to listen to their parents' warnings. In the end, they often suffer the very things their parents wanted them to avoid. They think they can get away with it. And this is the position of some scoffers Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You see what they're saying, right? Jesus is never coming back. Nothing's ever going to change. There is no day of reckoning. Remember, did you hear what Peter said, though? What are they doing? They're following their own sinful desires. 
they think they're going to get away with it. Of course, no day of reckoning, however, counts both ways, right? It means no punishment for the bad, but also no reward for the good, which means your actions in this life really don't matter. Now, I know there are repercussions in this life, but how many bad deeds go unpunished and how many good deeds go unnoticed? Don't those actions matter? You might think if Christianity is really a religion of celebration and grace, doesn't that mean there is no day of reckoning? That God just kind of sweeps everything under the rug? Well, no. Look again at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The conclusion is at first counterintuitive, right? We think Sinai is doom and gloom and condemnation. Zion is celebration and grace. Therefore, we conclude no accountability. We're, we're free from accountability. That's not the writer's conclusion, actually. His conclusion, logic runs like this. Sinai is doom and gloom and condemnation. Zion is celebration and grace. Therefore, greater accountability. And his logic is the greater message entails greater accountability. The greater message must still be listened to. It must be heeded. We must hear it and respond to it. And this has, again, been our, mess, our, our author's message the whole time in this book. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, spell it out explicitly. He said, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels at Sinai proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Look, right? All, all have sinned, scripture says. We all lack love, love for God, love for a neighbor. We've all dishonored God and damaged God's world, God's uh, world and God's people, including ourselves. We all deserve condemnation, right? Do this and live has become approach God and die. But Jesus has borne the guilt and power of sin at the cross. He rose from the dead in his resurrection, has entered into the Father's presence, and pleads with the Father on our behalf. He now offers us pardon through his blood. But you must listen. You must believe. You must receive that pardon by faith. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but he did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great, we might add and terrible, was the fall of it. See, God through Jesus is whispering his sweet grace in our ears. Are you listening? Now, you might think, well, that's not fair. I mean, you mean fate hinges on whether I listen to Jesus or not? I mean, what about those who have never even heard of Jesus? Well, here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. He says, that servant who knew his master's will 
but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And what Jesus is saying is that there is that, that, that judgment is according to knowledge. You will be held accountable for what you know. Now, we should say two things about that. Uh, the first is you all know the gospel, right? You've just heard it. The second is don't think that those who haven't heard it are then just kind of off the hook. I mean, everyone knows God on some level. Everyone knows the law of love. God has written it on our hearts, but everyone fails to glorify God and love their neighbor, which means everyone will be held accountable. God through Jesus is whispering his sweet grace in our ears. Are you listening? And if you are genuinely concerned about those who have not heard and that's not just a convenient move to ignore Jesus. Well, then first listen to Jesus and then go and tell others about him. We will all be held accountable on the last day for what we do with Jesus' words. Yes, it is a message of grace, but the pardon must be heeded. The gospel must be listened to and believed. If you reject the message of grace, you don't receive the grace. So we have the motivation of celebration, motivation of grace, motivation of accountability, and finally, the motivation of forever. And someone might say, well, why should I bother listening to Jesus? My life is pretty good. I mean, I have everything I want. Maybe you've got everything one could ask for in this life, family and friends, a good job, lots of money, health and happiness. Why should I bother listening to Jesus? Well, I would give you two reasons. We could probably think of others, but these two are probably the most important. First, you and I both know that something is missing. And all of those things are great, but they cannot satisfy the human heart. I don't care what you have in this life. If you don't have Jesus, you will always feel you lack something because you do. Second, whatever you may have in this life, it won't last. What will you do then? And that brings us to the last words in our text, starting again, again at verse 25, but going through verse 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. The writer says that just as God shook the earth at Sinai, so he will shake the heavens and the earth on a day to come. He's quoting from the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. It says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. The writer draws from this that there is a final shaking yet once more, as in once more and only once more. That's what he says in Hebrews 12, 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. See, Scripture teaches that this present age is passing away. 
1 Corinthians 7, 31, the present form of this world is passing away. 1 John 2, 8, the darkness is passing away. Revelation 21, 1, John sees a vision of the future where the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This world will not last. This life is so impermanent. What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? What are you holding on to and why? It won't last. The psalmist says in Psalm 102, the heavens and the earth will wear out like a garment and be changed by God like a robe. He alone lasts forever. He and anything that shares in his eternal life. This world will be shaken. Everything that is not nailed down will be removed. Now that imagery of shaking likely comes from threshing, right? You, you shake the grain so that the chaff is blown away by the wind. Only that with weight remains. This world will be shaken. When Jesus rose from the dead, he entered into a new kind of life, life in the spirit, life that has weight, the life of God enjoyed by man. And only those who receive this life remain. Eternity is held out in the gospel. Uh, John, the disciple of Jesus in 1 John chapter 5 said, God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. A glorious celebration is held out to us. When a people shaped by grace, having believed the gospel, will enter the world which remains, the world which will be a world that is perfect and glorious, and we will celebrate Jesus forever. It's fair to say uh, that in a sense, the shaking has already begun. As people hear the gospel, they either believe it or reject it. The winnowing process is already going on. But it's not final. It's not final until death or until Jesus returns, whichever comes first. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear the words of Jesus. We know that those ears come alone by the work of your spirit. So, so Father, pour out your spirit on everyone who is hearing this this morning or everyone who will ever hear this. Father, pour out your spirit on them. Pour out your spirit into their hearts. Take out our hearts of stone. Uh, take out our, our, our shallow, stony, rocky, weedy hearts and give us hearts of flesh. Hearts that are ready to receive the word of the gospel. Hearts that understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And hearts that respond in repentance and in faith and in new obedience. Father, give us ears to hear. To the glory of your son, Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.